Well, good evening and welcome. We're back and resuming, as you all know, our Wednesday evening study on the doctrines of grace. And we're moving right along. We've covered the first main section of these five, and we're moving along today. If you've been with us, technically this tonight is lesson number six, although lesson one had two parts to it, lesson five had two parts to it. But each of these lessons are meant to be kind of standalone uh, we're going concept by concept, topic by topic. And what we've done so far in this Doctrines of Grace study is, is primarily study sin, the sin problem. We just last week finished, completed, a, I think, a pretty good study, a thorough study on total depravity and total inability, these key concepts of sin. The next step to do, given how sin has drastically affected the human uh, condition, now we're moving on, and we've studied sin, is to ask, how are people saved? That's the problem. What's the solution? How are people saved from sin? Now, we're, we know the gospel. That's not what we're studying per se. It's, it's really, how do people come about to be saved? How, how are some saved? We know that not all are saved. That's not disputed by anyone except universalists, and we're not going to take our time to, to deal with that heresy right now. We're not concerned with those people that far away from orthodoxy. Instead, our goal in this study is to know what is the determining factor in the salvation of believers. We know that only some are saved. Why? Why only some? Why are some saved? And how are those some saved? How are those people saved? And this is where we will see a fundamental difference between these two schools of thought or systems of thought, Calvinism and Arminianism. The Arminian would say, only some are saved because only some choose to be saved. And the Calvinists would say only some are saved because only some are chosen to be saved, who then in turn thereafter choose to be saved. The difference comes down to who plays the deciding factor in salvation. The Arminian would say man, and the Calvinists would say God. Now I find on the surface, most people, they're going to gravitate toward the Arminian understanding because it's natural. Every world religion, every world view basically believes that man is in control of his own destiny, that he's the master of his own domain. People want to believe that. We like to think that we, we control our, our destiny, our, the future is in our hands, we, we have choice. And the Calvinist view in that regard is unnatural. I mean, who, who wants to believe that God is ultimately in control of your destiny? At the same time, you could point out who would make something like that up. Either way, though, our concern here as we continue in this study, it's not really over which one's more popular, which one's more pleasing to the natural mind. We really only have one question, which is taught by Scripture. What, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? That's all we really care about. Which of these views best accords with what Scripture says about God's role and man's role in salvation? And so the purpose of these next several lessons is to find that out. We've spent... Basically, five lessons to, to explore the sin problem. The next several lessons will go together, and we'll be exploring this issue now, God's role in the salvation of some. Now, the general order of this Wednesday night study on the doctrines of grace, we're following along and basically tracing the order of the original debate back in the 17th century, if you remember that historical introduction we gave at the beginning following the flow of the five points of Arminianism versus Calvinism. You guys remember the five points? 
Regarding the five points of Calvinism, there's an acronym developed used to summarize those. Helpful to remember, remember rather. In contrast to the five points of Arminianism, it's known as TULIP. We cover that in, I think, the second part of that first lesson. And so far, we've actually covered the T in TULIP, which stands for total depravity. It's also sometimes called total inability. We spent several weeks on both. And it actually is a really good place to start because it helps us delve into the sin problem. And from our previous studies, this first point has been confirmed and affirmed by Scripture. The picture of man before salvation in Scripture, it's extremely consistent, extremely bleak. Man is totally depraved, steeped in sin, locked in rebellion against God, unable to do anything about it, enslaved to Satan, opposed to God. And furthermore, we discover that man... He's totally unable to free himself from his bondage to sin and Satan. The fall has so radically affected humanity that all are born in such an enslaved condition. And this in turn affects our wills. Our human will, which includes the ability to choose God, has been bound. And so far we found that far from scripture describing our will as totally free, better it describes our will as being bound. Our wills are bound to sin and Satan held captive by them to do their will. Our wills are about as free as a prisoner is free in, in jail. He's free to do whatever he, he's able to do within the confines of the prison. He can live life. He can even choose what he wants to eat within the confines of the prison. But he's not free to go outside. He's not free to, to conduct business outside. He, he, can't, he has no freedom to do so. Therefore, he has no will or ability to do so. And likewise, we are free to conduct life here on earth, but we don't have the ability to seek, to know, or to find God. Our ability has been limited, so therefore our will is limited as well. This limited ability means that if any are saved, God must intervene. Or to put it another way, if God doesn't intervene to do something about our very fallen condition, none would be saved. No people would naturally come to know God on their own. They don't have the ability. And that's, if this is new to you, we're just, everything's up on the website. The website's current, so download what you missed from the past several weeks on total depravity, total inability. But God must act first to restore our wills and enable us to find him and believe in him. Already what we've studied is leading us toward a monergistic view of salvation. Remember that word from the very beginning, Describing that, that God is the active agent. It's his work and we merely receive as opposed to a, a cooperation between God and man. God acts first. God initiates this salvation. Now to be fair, and this might surprise some of you, some Arminians will give way to the biblical testimony and assent to total depravity and total inability. They'll say, we, yeah, we believe in total depravity and even total inability. And that's good. However, they then assert that God's provenient grace acts to overturn total depravity and total inability for all people alike. So on the one hand, although they give some assent to total depravity and, and total inability, they then immediately turn around and, and basically discard them as essentially irrelevant because God's grace, his general grace, it's already been given to all people that overturns the effects of the fall, like total depravity, like total inability. 
So there's still some differences to be had. The significant problems with that view of grace, and as I keep saying, there's nothing else I can do right now other than to say, we'll save that for when we study God's grace. That's the fourth part of this overall lesson. That's the the eye and tulip, uh, irresistible grace versus prevenient grace. So you're going to have to wait for that discussion. But in short, what we've already seen, though, that's... That's simply not how the Bible depicts unbelieving humanity, namely as once being you know, theoretically depraved, but now made better by God's general grace. We haven't seen that at all. Rather, what we have seen, several weeks of studying fallen man's condition after the fall, before salvation, and the picture, it's the same. It's extremely consistent, yet bleak, that man is everywhere depicted as depraved, lost, unable to find God. Thankfully, Arminians do believe that it takes an act of God's grace to overcome the effects of the fall. That's what separates them from the Pelagians, who were straight up basically works salvation. They still think you, God's grace must save you and do something. They just think that grace is given universally, and you can resist it. You can choose to not accept it. We will find later that God, no, when he gives his grace, he gives it Particularly, he gives it effectively. He gives it irresistibly. Those who receive God's grace will respond. They will be saved. But again, that whole discussion, we're, we're still saving for God's grace later on. But all of this still leads us presently into a discussion on election. How so? Well, the issue concerning election is all about whom God elects and how he elects them. Does God elect all people or only some to eternal life? And if God elects some, how does he choose? Does he choose based on his will or man's will? Who's the deciding factor in that choice? And this issue issue of election really cuts to the heart of the matter, the heart of the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. Again, some Arminians, they will capitulate to the T in tulip. They'll say, yeah, okay, we'll give you total depravity. We believe in total depravity, but they they still kind of write it off. But the U in tulip stands for unconditional election versus conditional election. The U represents a very distinct difference. There's no there's no common ground here. It's it's either one or the other. This is this is an issue that clearly separates the Calvinist from the Arminian. So where you land here pretty much tells you uh, which camp you're going to be in. That There's no real middle ground here. It's a very distinct issue. The Calvinist believes that God's election is unconditional, hence the U in tulip, and the Arminian believes that God's election is conditional. Both of these views will be defined, described, explained, and explored in the the many lessons to come, uh, starting even the next time we gather. Today, though, we're not going to get quite into election, but first we're going to start with with a general introduction to God's sovereignty. That's a necessary topic that must come first. Just like we didn't rush into total depravity and total inability, but actually we started by studying, remember, the fall and then uh, original sin. Those are some like foundational issues that come first. Well, likewise, God's sovereignty, the, the, the concept of God's sovereignty, we got to do that first. It's another, you know, just doing our due diligence. we got to establish God's sovereignty in general. 
And then we'll work our way, our way to God's sovereignty in salvation, which is election. So today, therefore, we're just going to start with a basic, but hopefully well-rounded introduction to God's sovereignty. And then we'll later get into predestination, God's sovereignty and salvation. Now you hear that word thrown out a lot, sovereignty. Calvinists use it a lot, speaking often and highly of God's sovereignty, his sovereignty and salvation. It can be confusing, though, because you'll hear Arminians talk about God's sovereignty often as well. It's just not in salvation. They, they will often speak, though, as if God is sovereign. And, and sometimes you get the impression that they kind of sound like the Calvinists. They, they, they claim God is really big in control of all things. But, but things kind of grind to a halt when it comes to sovereignty and salvation. You might be confused. What exactly does it mean to say God is sovereign? But what is the sovereignty of God? Well, to put it simply, God's sovereignty refers to his power, control, and rule over creation, over all things. His power, his rule, his control over all creation. God's sovereignty is directly related to his omnipotence, referring to his power. God is all-powerful, right? God has a will, right? Well, God's sovereignty is accomplishing his will, using his power to accomplish his will. He, he has things he wants to do. He has the power to do them. His sovereignty is God doing them, accomplishing his will. And this is why scripture speaks of God as working all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. So a, a simple definition again. God's sovereignty is his comprehensive rule over his creation. If you want a short one-liner, God's sovereignty is his comprehensive rule over his creation. And we can say, therefore, that whatever ultimately takes place was ultimately planned by God and purposed by God to happen. And the question we're going to spend the rest of our time addressing tonight is, is that really taught in Scripture? And, and to what degree? I mean, how, how, just how sovereign is God according to Scripture? Is he really portrayed in Scripture as being in control of all things? And by all things, you mean like all things? Like everything? <laughs> yeah, furthermore, I don't think any would really doubt God's power to control all things if he wanted to. Being the creator, surely he's got that power. But does God really choose to do so? Or does he limit himself? Does he like hold himself back from controlling certain things? For example, does God refuse to intervene in the affairs of men? Does he hold back as the Armenian will say, God created us as free, truly free beings, so he holds himself back on purpose. He could, but he chooses not to, to allow us freedom. Does the Bible teach that? Does God limit his sovereignty when it comes to the free choices of men or not? Well, we're going to find out tonight. So here's, uh, you have your, your homework, and you've already seen the outline in your homework from last time. We're going to go through and study the verses, take them further, and get a, a survey and introduction to God's sovereignty in Scripture. So we begin with some verses on God's sovereignty, just in general. Let's get a general picture first with these first set of verses. And as you see in your handout, if you have it with you, there's a lot of verses and I'll be going quickly through them. If you're really fast, you can try and turn along with me. Otherwise, it might, excuse me, it might be better for you to just listen along. I myself have already printed them out in advance for the sake of time. So I'll just kind of rifle through some of these and, and make some comment, 
God's sovereignty in general, starting in 1 Corinthians 29, 10 through 13, David blesses God and says, Blessed are you, O Lord uh, God of Israel, our Father. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. He says, you rule over all. In your hand is power and might. And that's just a, a, a sampling because, you know, there's so many verses just like that where the psalmist or God's people, they ascribe to God all the power, all the glory, all the dominion. And rightly so. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And, and he does according to his, his good pleasure. Job 42. After God reveals himself to Job, you remember? And he, Job repents in dust and ashes. And he says before God... Job 42, verse 1 and 2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job came face to face with the the power and the sovereignty of God. If you know the final chapters of Job and, and God shows up basically and Job realizes, wow, this is an extremely big God. He's a powerful God. And he's a sovereign God. He's actually in control. And Job says, I I now know no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You're only going to see more verses like that. God's will, his purposes are described as supreme, not ours. Psalm 115 verse 3, for example, says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Thankfully, he's good. Because if he wasn't good, it'd be terrifying. But still, God is presented as being this supreme being in the heavens, and he does what he wants. He does what he pleases, and what you think you're going to be able to stop him or thwart his will. You don't find that picture in scripture. Isaiah 14, 24, and 27, basically, it says, Just as God plans and purposes, so it will be done. If he has something planned or purposed, it will be done. In that case, in reference to judgment on Assyria, it was done. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. God says, I am God, there's no other. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And he goes on to say, truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. More more verses giving us the picture that God, but before creation, he has a plan. He, he's doing something on purpose. He's got plans. He's got purposes. He has a will. He's planned things out. He, he's declared the end from the beginning. So the end of human history, it's already been declared by God. And now he's bringing it about in time as we know it. And everything he says he's spoken, he's going to bring it to plat, to pass. He says, I've planned it. Surely I will do it. This is the sovereignty of God. That, that's like a basic definition of God's sovereignty. He has a plan. He has the power. And he's going to make it happen one way or another. Isaiah 55, 10, 11 says God uses his word to accomplish things sometimes. It says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I send to it. God's word doesn't return void. He sends his word out 
to accomplish things. And it, it, it always succeeds. Whatever he says or declares or does, it, it just happens. That's his sovereignty. Daniel 4.35, you remember after Nebuchadnezzar's humbling, he, like Job, finally recognizes who God is. And he confesses in Daniel 4.35 that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that he put all of humanity and even all the host of heaven together and they're accounted as nothing compared to God's will. He acts according to his will. Uh, and it's of all of humanity says are counted as nothing. All the collective will of mankind doesn't change anything because it's according to his will. He's supreme. That's what you get when you have a supreme being. You know Romans 8, 28. But just think about the verse. Think, think about what it takes for that to be true. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It mentions his purpose, but think about the first part of that verse. God causes all things to work together for good. What kind of a being can do that? You can't do that. You think about your children. You'd like to. You would love to cause everything in their life to turn out for good, wouldn't you? And if you had the power, you'd do it. You'd be pleased to do it, but you can't even come close. You are so not in control of so many things. You can't cause nearly anything to turn out for good. A lot of people shaking their heads one way or another. But you know it's true. You wish you could, but you can't. But God can and does. He causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. Because he's sovereign. And the end, Ephesians 1, 11, it says, speaking of us having been predestined according to his purpose, we'll talk about that, all, all that later, but it says of God who works all things after the counsel of his will. In all these verses, do you see exceptions? Do you see little caveats like, well, except for the free choices of men, God doesn't touch those. You don't see any of that. It just says God does all things according to his will. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. Causes all things to work together for good. That seems like that includes humans and our will. Nebuchadnezzar said it did. But let's keep going. You know, in this ongoing debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, the issue of free will often comes up. We've talked about it already a bunch and more to come. But... As these verses and others make clear, whatever you want to say about man's will, one thing is crystal clear. God has a will, and his will is supreme. Man has a will, yes. We, we're not robots. We are free agents, able to do certain things. We have a limited ability, as we've seen. We're not free to do everything. We've actually already seen that. Our, our, our freedom is limited by our ability, we don't have the ability to jump to the moon. You're not free, therefore, to jump to the moon. We've already found because of total depravity, total inability. We're actually not free to choose God or to know God. We don't have the ability, so we're not free to do so. Instead, the only truly free being is God. God has ultimate free will, the freedom to do according to whatever he desires. 
and pleases. And we find that man has a will. Yes, we're, we're not robots. We still have a will and we're able to do certain things. But God's will reigns and rules over all. He works all things according to his will, not our will. He works all things according to his will. And nothing can stop his will from being accomplished. That's just a f- the few verses you've already looked at. And if you have your notes, there's like a lot more verses to go. But that's to be expected from a supreme being. Accordingly, there's no event outside of God's providential control. As others have said, think of the whole universe, the stars, all the, the solar systems. There's not a single atom floating somewhere in the universe that is outside of God's control. If you just think about that, it's pretty big. Pretty big God, pretty comprehensive control. There's not a single renegade atom doing its own thing somewhere in the universe. Now, God, his rule over creation is often invisible. You don't see a literal hand of God causing the sun to shine. But people, even unbelievers, inherently sense some higher power ordering their life. They'll call it fate or luck or chance. The scripture teaches. Well, there is something at work. It's God. It, it's God's providence, which simply refers to God's sovereign control over nature, over the events of history. So let's now turn to God's sovereignty in nature, the second section in your notes. God's sovereignty in nature. A few verses here. Job 37, Job... Um, is, is told by, as God actually here is testifying. It says, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into a lair, and it remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with the moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands on the face of the inhabited earth. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. It's actually a pretty stunning passage of God's control over nature. First off, for a pre-modern world, has an amazingly accurate understanding of the, the, the water cycle from vapor to clouds to rain to, and so forth, condensation. But it also depicts God being in control of these things, causing these things to happen, whether for correction or his world or for loving kindness. He just directs nature according to his purposes. Psalm 104.14 mentions that God causes the grass to grow for the cattle. Now look, we understand... How does grass grow? Well, there's photosynthesis at work, right? We understand that God created things to have natural causes or efficient causes. So how does grass grow? One right answer would be to say photosynthesis. But what scripture is revealing that God is an ultimate cause of all things. That he, through his creation, through his providence, through his design, causes these things. It can be said that he causes the grass to grow as well. And so again, Psalm 135, 6 and 7, will attribute to God the elements. 
It says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. God designed all systems in this world and by his sustaining power, they continue to run and he orders them to to do and to act on their own, yet according to his plan. So when lightning strikes, God doesn't have to do anything. He's already created a system where it will create lightning, yet it will happen and strike exactly as he had planned and ordained it to happen. That's his comprehensive rule over his creation, such that it can be said he, he caused that lightning bolt to strike. Psalm 148.8 says the elements are fulfilling his word, fire, hail, snow, clouds, wind. Daniel 6.22 points out how it was God who shut the lion's mouth when Daniel was in the lion's den. Do you remember that? That's God's sovereign control over animals. They were hungry, yet Daniel was there and as God's servant, it was his providence, his sovereignty that shut their mouths didn't touch Daniel. Instead, when Daniel's accusers were thrown into the pit, they were immediately devoured by the lions. It's God's sovereign hand over his creation. Amos 4.7 mentions God withholding rain. You also think of Elijah's drought, God ordering the created world for his purposes, in that case, using drought as judgment. Matthew 5.45, Christ mentions how God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Christ also a couple of times mentions God's sovereignty and his rule over creation extends even to something as insignificant as birds, sparrows. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? A similar Matthew ten twenty nine are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The events of nature, they all can be explained by natural means, yes. But God is revealed to be the ultimate cause of all things by his providence, by his created power, his sustaining power. He's in control, and he ultimately will use the systems he made to accomplish his other purposes. God directs natural causes to accomplish his will. So we can say that God is sovereign over the means and the ends. He's sovereign over the the photosynthesis and the actual growth of the grass. Now let's keep going. The next category, it's not just nature though, it's not just the created world, it's not just inanimate objects. Scripture also reveals that God is sovereign over nations. There's another distinct category in Scripture that God is seen to be sovereign over nations. The Bible often speaks about God ordering the affairs of entire nations all to bring about his purposes. So Joshua 21:44 mentions how God gave Israel the victory. They conquered the promised land, right? Now they had to do the fighting. Yeah, they had to pick up swords and fight, but God gave them the victory. God caused them to prosper. As a perfect example of God being sovereign over the means and the ends. It was his will that they had to fight, yet he still caused the victory and gave them the victory. Likewise, in Judges 6.1, when Israel sinned, God gave them into the hands of the other nations. He caused the other nations to rise up 
and to oppress them in judgment. God using even that to, even these other nations to, to judge now. Job 12.23, Job has insight. He says of God, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. They're in his hand. When they rise, when they fall, it's up to God. In fact, already been determined. Psalm 22, verse 28 says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 33, verse 10, God nullifies the counsel of nations. He frustrates the plans of people. Because, Psalm 47, verse 7, God is king of all the earth. Daniel recognized, and by the way, sorry for the typo, it should say Daniel 2, verse 21, not verse 2. Some of you are confused. That means you guys did your homework. Good for you. (laughs) You recognized it. So you can write down Daniel 2.21 instead on your homework there if you're sorry inclined. It says, this is Daniel reflecting, and he says of God, It is he who changes the times and the epochs or epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God is the one who says your, your time has come. You're king now, you're president now. God's not surprised. It was part of his plan. He, he raises them up in his timing for his purposes, the good and the bad. And in, in his timing, according to his purposes, he takes them down. Nebuchadnezzar, likewise, being one of those kings who was taken down by God and later raised up, raised back up again, he, in his, in his right mind, later confessed, Daniel 4, 17. He said, regarding what God had done to him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. Again, all these verses, they talk a lot about will, a lot about free will, only it's God's free will, not man's. God is ordering all things. He's ordering creation. He's ordering the affairs of nations according to his will. Just It's, it's whatever he wishes. He, he's the ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes. Doesn't get that much clearer, right? Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, all the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Before God, you put together all the nations, and they're like a a speck of dust on the scales. They don't even move the scales. You know, ancient scales are weighing things out, determining value. Picture a perfectly even scale, speck of dust on one side. It doesn't register. You wouldn't even know it's there. That's all the nations to God, that he's supreme. Do you get the picture that he's big? You know, a lot of people on this whole issue of of Calvinism, Arminianism, for, for some, they just have a small God. You just spend some time seeing how big God is. It clears up a lot of confusion when you realize how big God is. It, there's only one way this thing is going to go. One more verse, Acts 17.26, or where Paul preaches that God has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. There's a direct verse on sovereignty. God has determined, talking about the nations, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. 
You look at the, the, a map of the world throughout history, the borders are always changing and shifting and, and being redrawn. God had that map planned from day one. He knew that, okay, Israel, you're a nation. I'm, you're, here's the exodus. Now you're in the promised land. Your borders, you, they, they, they grow. They shrink under Solomon. They get really big. Then they shrink. Then the nation divides. Then it's wiped out. There is no nation. And here we are, 1947, nation's back. God had determined all this from the beginning. He declared the end from the beginning. That includes all the affairs of nations. And most Christians, I think, they, they'll accept, okay, sure, God's sovereign over nations. They can accept, yeah, God will, he will order the affairs of the nations for his purposes. They can see how, for example, God raised up the Babylonians to judge the Israelites for his purposes. But think about it. What is a nation other than a collection of individuals? How does God ordain the rise and fall of nations and kings if he doesn't at the same time ordain the rise and fall of individuals within those nations? And individual kings. The concept of a nation is not an empty class. So if God is sovereign over the group, he must be sovereign over the individuals in that group. Do you follow? And not surprisingly, scripture teaches that God, his sovereignty extends over the the lives of individuals, over the very lives of individuals. And so that leads us to the next section. An important section here in your notes God's sovereignty in individual lives. We're talking people now, humans, not, no, not, not animals anymore, but, but God, those made in God's image, God's sovereignty in individual lives. Again, most will accept God's sovereignty over plants and planets, inanimate objects, even animals. That's fine. God can control all the lines. People have no problem giving that control to God. But they start to object when God's sovereignty starts to meddle in the affairs of their lives. Because again, for some reason, people feel entitled to be in control of their lives and their destinies and their their days. They don't like to hear that their days are numbered and all of their days were written in God's book when as yet there were none. They don't like to hear that. Uh, God who's actually in control of their lives and, and their destinies. It's not fun to hear. But that is what the Bible teaches. God's sovereignty includes the ordering uh, of the lives of all people, even the mundane aspects of their lives. Again, this doesn't mean we're robots with no choice. God gives us responsibility and choice in certain areas. And our choices are meaningful because God says our choices are meaningful. Well, we'll talk more about that later. But in Scripture... God is still depicted as sovereign over our individual lives. And later we'll spend probably a whole lesson on exploring how man's responsibility fits within God's sovereignty. But for now, just understand God's sovereign, even over individual lives. And so some verses here. These first verses, Genesis 45, verse 5, Genesis 50, verse 20. File those away. Those are the ones to highlight. Those are the ones to memorize because they're so powerful. You know the story uh, of Joseph and his brothers, what they did to him, uh, of their jealousy, of their envy. They, they first wanted and, and almost tried to kill him, but decided to sell him to slavery. How he was then taken captive to Egypt and wronged and mistreated. He, he, he rose up, but then was falsely accused and imprisoned, went back down, but then rose up again, even to second in the kingdom. 
God used him to, li- to deliver many from famine. Even later he found his own people, his own brothers came to him for food. And it's such an amazing story, all these turn of events, like a soap opera, all these wild circumstances. Yet Joseph later recognizes that God was in control of it all, the good and the evil, to bring about his present circumstances in order that he could preserve the lives of many people, including his own people, which, which God used to preserve God's promise uh, to his people. So he says in 45.5 to his, his brothers, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And Genesis 50.20 he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. We're talking about an individual's life. And think of all the bad things that happened to Joseph. Joseph later, uh, who's responsible? Well, his brothers and, and the Egyptians, they're, they're responsible. They are. And they'll be judged if they're unbelievers. But Joseph also recognizes at the same time, God's responsible. He sent me here. He, he wanted me here. He, and that involved bad things. But God's in control of even that too. Even the bad. He doesn't do it. But yet he's sovereign over it to accomplish his greater good. Psalm 33, 40, 14 and 15 mentions how God fashions the hearts of all. Proverbs 69 says that the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I mean, think about that. That's talking about the king. He's still an individual, though. And his heart, his very person is in God's hand. And it says he turns it. He moves it wherever he wishes. That's talking about a person's very essence, his heart, his will, his desires. His whole person is in God's hand. And and God will turn it according to his will. Didn't he do that with Pharaoh? Romans 9, we'll see that in great detail later. In a future study, but Pharaoh raised up for God's purposes. Back to Daniel 3, from the lion's den to the fiery furnace. And Daniel's three friends know that they say, if God wills, he'll deliver us. It's up to his will. He may, he may not. But his will will be supreme. Isaiah 64, 8 depicts God as the potter, we the clay. It says, you are our father, we the clay, you are potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Another image Paul will pick up in Romans 9 of God's control over people. I mean, what more sovereign picture of our lives is there than a potter and a lump of clay? A lump of clay has, has no stage. It's just clay. It just receives and is, is molded into a vessel of honor, a vessel of dishonor. It, it's just passive. And that's precisely what he teaches in Romans 9. God is sovereign over our very lives. We'll we'll save that passage in Romans 9, of course, for next week and following. Jeremiah 1.5. God says of Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And talk about predestination, God completely predestined Jeremiah to be a prophet before he was even born. He's like, your life is determined. 
I have set apart, you will be this, you will do this, before you're even born. God determined what he would do and what he would be. Nehemiah 4 points out how God frustrated the plans of the enemies of the wall. Remember rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. God intervened in their lives and he frustrated them. Romans 9, I mentioned how God raised up Pharaoh for his purposes. Listen to this, James 4, 14 and 15. James says, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. I should have read the verse before, which mentions these men hypothetically saying, Hey, let's go build a barn or let's go build this great work, acting as if they know tomorrow, they're in control of their destiny. And James says, you're fools. Your, your life is a vapor. You don't know your, when your days are numbered. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this, we'll do that. That's why we talk like that, by the way, because we recognize it's up to God's will. Ultimately, it's up, it's up to his will. This includes, you see in your notes here, a little some, some added points. God's sovereignty over the lives of men includes the free acts of men. Exodus 12, 36 mentions how the Israelites plundered the Egyptians uh, during the Exodus. And you recall, when that happened, God promised, like, hey, I'm going to deliver you with my hand. You're going to leave Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians, they'll give you all their treasure. And God promised that would happen. God caused that to happen. And that's what that verse says. But notice, they did that of their own free will, so to speak. God didn't force them. He didn't coerce them. They didn't know they were acting according to God's will. They just were so frustrated with the plagues. They just said, here, take our treasure, just get out. See how they were acting according to their will, yet they, they were acting according to God's will at the same time. This is how he works, even through the free acts of men. You see that in Ezra 6 and 7 as well. God, it says, he causes the people to rejoice. Uh, by moving the heart of the king. He didn't coerce them, but they rejoiced because they were delivered from uh, the king of Assyria, favored them, and God enabled them to rejoice of their own free will by ordering circumstances in in the lives of the king. Philippians 2.13. We learn that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God even supplies the will to do His will. So God's sovereignty includes the free acts of men. It also includes the sinful acts of men. God is sovereign even over the sinful acts of men. We already saw that in Joseph's case with his brothers. John 19, 11. Jesus said to Pilate, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Speaking of Pilate and the Jews over Christ, here's a verse that doesn't get any clearer. Acts 4, 27, 28. Peter said, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Think about the cross. Pilate. The, the, the Herod, the Sanhedrin, the Gentiles, 
They all killed Jesus of their own free will. They weren't being acted upon, except Judas, who was motivated by Satan. But nonetheless, the others were acting of their own free will. Yet, they still did precisely what God had predestined to occur. That's his sovereignty. That's the definition. He still is able, even through men who are free, quote-unquote, to accomplish his will. And that's what he does. There's no holding off his hand. This even includes matters of life and death. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 says, God says, I am he, there's no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There's none who can deliver from my hand. Ultimately, when someone dies, it's because God determined it was their time. God says, it is I who put to death and give life. He's sovereign over life and death. 1 Samuel 2.6, it says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down a shield. He raises up. Can it be any, any other way? If God is truly supreme, I mean, can, can we really exist outside of his will and control? Job 14.5, Job says, Man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you. You've set his limit so that he cannot pass. God has written in his book, this is, these are his days. You can't go past because it's, God's in control. And uh, as I quoted earlier, Psalm 139, verse 16. David says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This is the sovereignty of God. In general, in nature, in nations, in individual lives, it's, it's comprehensive. So far, I hope it's crystal clear from the biblical testimony that God is supremely sovereign. He has power over all things. He exerts his control over all things. This includes intervening in the lives of men according to his purposes. God can do all things. At the very least, you have to acknowledge if God wanted to you know, intervene in the lives of men and maybe affect their wills or, or cause them to do what he wants them to do, you have to admit at least he has the power to do so. Indeed, as your notes finish, there's nothing too difficult for the Lord. Several verses, there, there's nothing too difficult. He can do all things, including, if he chooses, direct the steps of men. And that's precisely what he does. Now, at this point, I want to finish our time mentioning an objection. At this point, the Armenian would object and say, well, look, the will of God is supreme, except when it runs up against the will of man. Then the will and wishes of God bow to the free will of man. This, they say, this doesn't diminish God because, well, God freely decided to create man with a truly free will. God in love, in making us in his image, he decided to create us with a truly free will that cannot be controlled or decided by an outside factor, even himself. So God willingly, he didn't have to do this, but he chose to create us with this ultimate free will where he limited himself that we were truly so free that not even he could affect our own free will. And this, the effect of this is to make man's will sovereign and free and God's will impotent and bound. It might sound appealing philosophically, but 
as we've already seen, it's just not what Scripture teaches. There's not a single verse that even suggests any of that. That whole teaching is just made up. I mean, it's philosophical, but you won't find a single verse to even support that notion that God gave us such a free will or limited his will. You won't find anything. It may accord with human philosophy, but Scripture depicts God as being sovereign and free there's no thwarting of his plans, purposes, and will. Didn't we just read like 20 plus verses to that effect? Now they will point out though, Arminians, you know, what about all those examples in scripture where humans do thwart the will of God? The Armenian will often point these out as examples where man's will stopped or changed God's will. And there are several examples. I'll give you some. Matthew 6.10, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will could not be re- resisted, there's no point in praying that. Well, why are we praying that if God's will is always done? Fair point. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. So here's Jesus, and it seemingly says he wanted, and the Greek word is thelo for for will. He wanted to gather them, but they were unwilling, same word. And so here is a picture of the will of Jesus slash God being thwarted. He wanted to gather them, but they were unwilling, so he couldn't do it. What do you make of that verse? Very similar to Matthew 22, verse 3, which says, He called out to all the people to come to the banquet, but the, the guests were unwilling to come. So they didn't come because they were unwilling. Luke 7, verse 30, it says, The Pharisee and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. A verse that mentions here these Pharisees were, and they rejected God's purpose for themselves. So there's an example of God's purposes being thwarted. He had a purpose, but they rejected it. What do you make of that? Or lastly, 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, rather, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So talk about the wishes of God. God wishes all to be saved, but not all are saved. So there's another example of God's wishes being thwarted. You follow? And so you're, now you're probably wondering, oh, well, what about those verses, right? Well, here's the thing. To, to think you can build a notion of free will on those verses is, is very misguided. You can't have God being totally free and man being totally free at the same time. Because when these two free wills run up against each other, well, who wins? Who, who's going to give in to the other? Arminians believe that God's will gives in. God limits himself and his will so that we can be truly free. This makes human free will the supreme force in the universe. But again, that's, that's not even hinted at in Scripture. Going back to what we found last time, it, it really boils down, what's the implicit teaching of Scripture? That, that's all they got. It's what's implicit. But they fail to account for all the verses we just read, excuse me, which are the explicit teaching of Scripture. You can't build a whole school of theology based off of 
something that's implicit or something that you just make up from philosophy. What's the explicit teaching of Scripture? According to verses, actual verses, whose will is free and supreme? And and we've seen tonight, it's God's. You don't find any hint of man's will as being free and supreme. But still, what do you make about those verses we just read where man seemingly thwarts God's will? Well, Calvinists don't deny those verses. We don't have a problem with those verses. There are, in fact, countless examples of men acting against God's will. In fact, every single time a person sins, he or she is denying God's will. Right? Wouldn't you say God's will is that you never sin? And so every time you sin, you are thwarting God's will. You are denying God's will, right? But here, the Armenian fails to make a very basic and simple distinction between the revealed will of God and the decreed will of God. I mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks back, and here I want to, although our time's almost up, I want to wrap it up and, and mention it again. The Bible very clearly teaches there are different forms of the will of God. For one, there is the will of decree. This is God's sovereign will. This is the will of God by which he sovereignly ordains all that comes to pass. Is there proof of this? We just spent the whole hour studying this. Every verse we just read was referring to God's sovereign will, his will of decree, where he says, what I have said will come to pass. I mean, that's God's sovereign will of decree. He says it, it will happen. He plans it, it will happen. He ordains it, it will happen. And this is because God is supreme. Scripture paints God as supreme. And so this explains all those verses which say nothing can ward off God's hand. Nothing can thwart his purposes. This means that whatever happens ultimately fits according to the plan and purposes of God. Now, God's sovereign will is most often hidden from our view, which is why we often call this the hidden will of God. Like, when are you going to die? I don't know. It's hidden. That God hasn't revealed. It's been determined. We already saw all those verses saying God sovereignly set the limits on your days, wrote them in a book. It's decreed, but we don't know it. So it doesn't do us much good in that regard, but it's hidden. But it's still there. We still acknowledge God has a sovereign will. This is contrasted to God's revealed will or will of precept. God's revealed will concerns his moral will for his creation. God has revealed this will. It's not hidden. This is, it's called revealed will. He's revealed it to us through our conscience and then his law uh, for, the, for the Jews, you know, like the Ten Commandments or the law written on the heart for the Gentiles or the New Testament. You get the point. This will is not hidden. God has revealed, for example, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. In fact, God's revealed will says don't sin at all, like ever. It's completely obvious, though, that we have the power to thwart God's revealed moral will. In fact, any time and every time we sin, we are thwarting God's revealed will. But it's not enough for the Armenian to say this because that's just stating the obvious. They fail to realize that even when we so-called thwart God's revealed will, we're in the end still acting according to God's hidden will. In the end, we're still doing precisely what God intended for us to do. So when you study further, for example, Jesus coming up to Jerusalem and weeping because they're unwilling to come to him, you find that's true, but that was ordained. 
that was planned, that they would reject the Messiah, that they would not believe, they would not come. That was part of God's decreed will. Christ is genuinely heartbroken over the consequences of them disobeying God's moral will, his revealed will, but it by no means diminishes God's sovereign will or or speaks against it. And same goes for all those verses. The only reason the Arminian rejects God's sovereign will is because of human reason, philosophy, to keep their system alive. But our whole lesson tonight has revealed God's sovereign will. It exists, and it's clearly taught in Scripture. He is sovereign and supreme, even over the lives of individual men. And as a final example, I'll point you one more time to the cross, because it's the best example. It really is the best example. God's revealed will said, hey, don't murder. Accept the Messiah. He all these people, they conspired together to reject Jesus and to kill him. They acted on their own. God never coerced them. He didn't twist their arm. He didn't make them do anything against their will. They're therefore responsible for their actions. This is why it says they'll be judged. Yet through God's sovereignty, they still somehow, and this, this, is, this goes beyond us, but they still somehow ended up doing exactly what was planned for them to do. They still freely did exactly what God planned and predestined for them to do. This doesn't give Judas, for example, an excuse. Understand, we have the power to break God's moral will. We don't have the right to break it, which is why we're still judged. Yet God even uses the sinful and evil acts of men for his greater purposes. Like it says again, Acts 4, 27, 28, another verse to to highlight and circle. Truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They were violating the will of God. They were thwarting the revealed will of God, which said, don't kill the Messiah. But at the same time, they were still falling right into the sovereign will of God, the will of decree. God, this was part of the plan from eternity past. That is the sovereignty of God and the sovereign will of God. So that will suffice for now for our introduction into God's sovereignty. God's will is depicted as supreme, not man's. God's will is entirely free, not man's. And God's will of decree will always be accomplished. What lastly remains to be seen, taught explicitly in Scripture, is whether or not God uses his will to affect the salvation of sinners. Namely, does God really choose some to be saved? Even Arminians, they'll say, okay, yeah, God's sovereign. They'll talk, they'll talk the talk of sovereignty. But they'll never say God is sovereign in salvation. And so the question is, is God sovereign in salvation? The Arminian will say God is sovereign in all things except salvation. The Calvinists will say God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. And that really finally brings us to the concept of election, which is next, next week, next time we gather. So that'll do it for tonight. I'll pray, and we'll be done. Until next time. Let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we, 
We delight in this study tonight because it takes us into your word where we behold you. Anytime we get to see you, uh, we're the better for it, Lord. Especially when we see and recognize how big you are. You're not a small God. It's so common for man to bring you down to our level, to remake you into our image. A nice God we can fit in a box, we can control, we can make him do our will and, and work according to our pleasure. But that's not how it is, Lord. That's not how you are. You are mighty. You're supreme. You're infinite. You're transcendent. You're sovereign. And you, you work all according to your will. But we thank you for this. We thank you that you're good, that we can know that your will is good and you're working things out toward a good plan. We shudder to think if that weren't true. Uh, but for all of this, Lord, we can praise you and exalt you that you are our sovereign God. And we rest in that sovereignty knowing that you will cause all things to work together for that good for us. For us, you've been called according to your purpose. We didn't call ourselves, Lord. We know it was your purpose that called us. All we can do as recipients of your grace is say thank you and to praise you. And as we dwell more on your sovereignty and behold more of you, and to praise you all the more and to delight in you all the more and to thank you all the more. We do that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.